Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversation. I am Dr. Terry Jackson, and he is Dr. Philip Brown. And we are at the intersection. What is interesting about the intersection is that we all experience intersections daily. We experience intersections at work, home, church, and play. How we handle those intersections will determine the trajectory of our daily life. Dr. Brown. I think today we may have to ask some tough questions based on our topic. And so I just kind of want to put out that disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> and, you know, folks can make their own decision. But every time we talk about a topic like this, no matter what environment you're in, it can make people uncomfortable. And so today what we're going to talk about is a recent uh, Wilmington City Council decision to take down the artwork of Black Lives Do Matter. Controversial decision, probably some tough questions associated with it, but I look forward to the discussion. Yes, I look forward to the discussion as well. Because Wilmington has, ha has had a history of these type of um, anxious moments, if you will. We can go back to history, 1898. We can fast forward to uh, the Wilmington 10. Um, we can go even talk about the resegregation of the school system, right? It's interesting because it seems like history keeps repeating itself. It's a pattern, and I think you called it a habit one time, right? And so this conversation is going to be uncomfortable, but it's much needed. And so I look forward to eagerly delving into this conversation. Well, yes, it makes me think, you know, one thing that my dad has always taught me, still trying to teach it to me, is the concept that perception is reality. Mm. And so one of the things around this topic is we're all coming at it from different angles. And sometimes it may be hard to understand the other person's angle, kind of mm. gets us into that empathy bucket we talk about from time to time, right? And so I think there's a, an exploration to be had about what those perceptions mean. And mm -hmm. I think that we have a good dynamic between us to, to talk a little bit about that. So when you heard about that decision, how did it hit you? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I was reading an article about city council making the decision to take down the sign. And as I read the article, I went directly to the comments and I saw a couple people put down, the sign in and of itself is racist. And I began to think to myself, the sign isn't racist. The, you know, it's the people who are racist. The sign is just the sign. Black lives matter. <clears throat> and why is there such a challenge with understanding that black lives matter? That's the conversation that I'm looking to, to get into. Um, to me, it didn't impact me one way or the other. I didn't have any good feelings about it. I didn't have any bad feelings about it. Because to me, it just is. It's, it's a, it's a no-brainer for me. But obviously, for a lot of people in this community and across the country, the Black Lives Matter has some negative connotation. i give you an example. There's a friend of mine that I went to high school with, junior high through high school, actually. He lives in Wilmington. He spent 24 years on the police force in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we've since be 
become friends on Facebook. We've met once for lunch. And every time something comes up about history and black history, he mentions Black Lives Matter. He has an obsession with Black Lives Matter for whatever reason, and I can't understand why he has this obsession with Black Lives Matter because he wants to continuously toss out what he calls some of the violence perpetrated by Black Lives Matter, right, the movement. And I'm like, where are you getting this and where are you going with this and why is this obsession? Without him knowing and having a great deal of evidence, he's impacted by it. And I don't want to judge him one way or the other, but he, he does have a bias around Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, well, if black lives impact you that way, how does your friendship, how does your friendship with me impact you? Because I'm a black male. I'm, I'm a part of what that sign is talking about, right? It's quite interesting. A great example of perception is reality. Yes. And when I think about our downtown sign, if you remember, you know, ultimately, it was, a, it was a process to even get it. It was controversial. We were right in the wake of George Floyd and mm -hmm. Ahmaud Arbery's murders. Mm -hmm. And it ended up that there couldn't be agreement on Black Lives Matter, so they made it Black Lives Do Matter. Right. Right. And so it's, uh, it was always hard for me to understand, do we, this little bitty southern town, think we're so different from every other town <laughs> in America that we need a different slogan or what's so difficult right. about just supporting the existing movement, right? People try to make things maybe what they're not and, right. and all this. And, and maybe that's some type of signal that I don't, that I'm not really attuned to. Right. But I just always had that question, right? You know, from the standpoint of our city council, why was it important to make it say something a little different than what the bigger picture slogan had been? It, it, it can't be anything but comfort. People want to be comfortable, right? They don't want to be agitated. For me, I don't mind being the sandpaper because I know what the sandpaper does is make the rough edges smooth. And we should have those sandpaper kinds of conversations, right? You know, doing the whole Black Lives Matter situation, there was in the South this whole movement around taking down the Confederate statutes because of what they represented. And I had a couple of people ask me what, what was my thought about the Confederate statues. And I said, well, it really doesn't matter to me because one, they were losers. They lost the Civil War. And for the most part, when you go back into history, they lost to some of those who were enslaved who went to the North and came back and fought against them and defeated them. Two, if you were so willing to take down those Confederate statues and hide that history, how much more of my history are you willing to hide? So history is history is history. There's nothing we can do about that, right? But now, CRT, right? <laughs> to, to, to hide real history from people, not wanting it taught because it makes a group of people uncomfortable. As far as I can remember, and as I look through history, African Americans have always been uncomfortable in this country. The challenge is we're, we're not willing to have the uncomfortable conversation so that everybody can be comfortable. And that's why I think it's part of the challenge is with this conversation. Well, that's, that really gets you, you know, to the point of things, right, is that, you know, it's 
there's comfort associated with things. There's fear associated with it. You know, yeah. who is to, you know, my take on the, the Confederate statues was ambivalence, right? right? Like, And so I would always rely on my friends that had different perspectives right. on what that ought to be. Right. And ultimately where I ended up landing with it was that I found that most, most of my friends were – if they look like me, they were either ambivalent or a small percentage really favored keeping it right. for the history. Almost to a person, mm-hmm. I'd say 90 plus percent of my friends of color mm-hmm. were it ought to come down because mm-hmm. we find it offensive. But, you know, what you were saying gets us at a topic that we talk about a lot, the whole truth, yes, right? Yes, like, yes. you know, this concept of let's tell the whole truth, the entire history, mm-hmm. whatever that is, right? Because mm-hmm. no matter what, we can only go forward from where we are now. Right. But we can learn a lot from the whole truth, right? And right. and it's not really legitimate to put out a bunch of facts That's right. and call it the truth, right? That That's just right. makes a story. That's right. That's right. That's right. The whole truth is when you get everything out on the table. I think we're probably overdue for that, uh, you know, not just here, much, much more broadly in our country and probably across the globe yes. uh, than where we are now. If I'm not mistaken, there was something that said the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? And so it's interesting that we don't live by that, but we talk about it on a regular basis as we f- refer to governmental documents, right? I've always been interested in... Why doesn't America want to have this conversation around race? You know, Einstein said that the worst disease under which the society of our nation suffers, in his opinion, was the treatment of the Negro. And this was back in 1946. And so up till today, we're not really having the conversation around we're all human we have different hues, but as you like to say, when you cut them open, everybody looks alike, right? So why can't we have this conversation to understand? I remember when I was in high school, this young lady asked me, uh, one of my classmates, we were down at the beach at the end of the year, senior, seniors, right, um, white young lady, and she asked me, she came up to me, and she said, Terry, how do you dry your hair? And I looked at her and I smiled. I said, that's interesting. I dry my hair just like you. I either use a hair dryer or a towel. I felt good that she was comfortable enough in our friendship to ask me the question, but I was baffled because she thought that I dried my hair a totally different way as if I wasn't human. And this was in 1981, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing to me. But it speaks to the perceptions and the myths and not being proximate, right? Because if you're proximate, she was proximate enough to ask the question but not have the knowledge of. And so question I'd like to dig into is what does proximity reveal? In her instance, it revealed ignorance, which I gave her the answer, which now she is more knowledgeable about it, but... In proximity, there's a lot that's revealed around this topic of black lives do matter or just the whole race issue in America. You know, 
you talk about a word that creates all kinds of different realities. You know, say racism in a polite crowd, no matter where you are, mm-hmm. and and the reactions are often almost incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things I always like to try to do now, and this is from making the mistake many times, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having the scars, the show, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, so what is the definition of racism? Mm-hmm. And people put out a whole lot of different ones. You know, the one that I like right now, and I've got it written actually right here, so I don't even misquote it in the least bit, uh, is that racism occurs when individuals or institutions show more favorable evaluation or treatment of an individual or group based on race or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times in the public discourse, Folks make racism about oppression, mm-hmm. about disadvantaging someone, and certainly that. Mm-hmm. This particular definition begins to change it and say, mm-hmm. let's look at systems that have perpetuated this, and let's look at the actually look at how folks are advantaged mm-hmm. as opposed to how they're disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And you see that play out throughout all of America because you can look at the Fortune 500 CEOs. Mm-hmm where 90% of them are white males. How can that math possibly work out unless there are certain advantages that play out over a long period of time? Mm-hmm. How could it, how, what must be true? What must be true for that to be the case? Exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was doing a presentation for New York Life uh, probably 2016, and it was for their top 20 women leaders within the organization. So a question hit me. How many men in the country and how many women in the country? And what I found was there were only 10 states in the United States in which men outnumber women. So that means there are 40 states in the country where women outnumber men. And when you go back to the Fortune 100 and you see that there are more men, uh, the majority of the CEOs are men, how is that the case when there are more women in the country than men? That was quite interesting. What I also found was that over the age of 40, for women executives, they clearly outperform their male executives as a leader. Part of that is due to the nurturing of the family, having, to ha- having had children, nurturing the children, they become a more nurture, more nurturing type of leader, and as a result, they get more out of their people. It, it's, it's quite interesting. So it's um, this is a, <laughs> a heavy topic to address. It, yeah, it's heavy. You know, again, it's, it's about that. It, it is about, if you think about it from a concept of advantage, it still scares people, yes. right, because – how many folks, you start having this discussion, this conversation, and immediately they bristle because they're like, I worked hard to get where I am, right? I, you know, how dare you say I had any advantage? I didn't. I came from whatever to what I am now. Right. And it just, it takes them back into that perception as reality space and sometimes that'll arrest the conversation. But how do you go forward from that? It's interesting because you do hear and you do see the comments all the time. You guys always want to talk about race. I say, well, it's embedded in the very fabric of this country. 
let's go back to 1776. At the same time that a group of people was declaring their independence, they were still enslaving a group of people at the same time. It was something that was simultaneous. To me, it was hypocritical to say that I'm human and, and I'm, I'm going to be independent and free of Great Britain, but yet I'm enslaving these Africans that are here as if they're not human beings. I can never understand that. That was that was total hypocrisy, right? And so people don't want to look back on the history, and the history is clear. The empirical evidence is clear, but for whatever reason, the perception of how you were raised. And yes, you worked hard, and a lot of other people worked hard as well. We're not denying the fact that you worked hard, but there are certain privileges that came along with that simply because of the hue of your skin. Um, and that's a difference that I just can't, I don't understand why people still have those differences, right? Because again, I go right back to what you said, you cut them open, they look the same. When I cut, I, I bleed, right? I know that the hue of my skin has, serves a biological function. That's all it serves, a biological function. So how did you take that and make that a disadvantage for me and make your hue an advantage for you when, when what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, we do everything the same. But it's just the cue of the skin that's been made an advantage or a disadvantage. I'm still trying to understand that mindset, and and um, I don't know if I ever will. Yeah, I mean, I think it to peel back the history of how it got to be that way is pretty easy now for folks that have enough mm -hmm. courage to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, but to understand why is virtually impossible. Hmm. And, you know, as a surgeon, I definitely have science on my side in, <laughs> in answering this question, right? Because right. not only have I seen it with my own eyes for, you know, two plus decades, but the Human Genome Project that was completed in early 2000 demonstrated that from a genetic standpoint, there is less difference between races than there is within a given ethnicity, right? And we're 99.8% the same from a genetic standpoint. And so when you really start thinking about it like that, you get to the place where, you know, so why is it so hard to have the discussion? And I think a big part of it is just fear, mm -hmm. right? And I think about my own personal journey where, you know, people that are about my age, your age, about the same, you know, you're taught from an early age for the most part that racism is wrong. Mm -hmm. And during that time, most of it was, well, let's don't talk about it because we'd be talking about something bad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you wake up 20 years later and, and you have experiences that say, hey, the world isn't like I thought it was. And at that point, there's a decision to make, right? Do I lean into it? Do I sit in that discomfort and figure it out, figure out how to impact it? Mm -hmm. Or do I just back off into my comfort, which is what you spoke about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, and we know this from the business world, we know this from the physical fitness world and health world, a lot of times comfort is the enemy. Yes. yes. So talk a little bit about how comfort is the enemy in this case? You know, it, it's, it's interesting uh, about comfort because 
comfort has been used in, 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 in a number of ways, you know, coming out of uh, segregation, desegregation, uh, African-American families, uh, jobs, paycheck, buying homes. They couldn't resist as they did maybe in the 60s uh, <clears throat> because they, did, they were comfortable, didn't want to rock the boat. The status quo doesn't want to rock the boat. It's all about comfort. Um, and I'm going to tell you a story. I remember being in Los Angeles in 1991, 1992. It was doing the, I think it was Reginald Denny, who had, uh, no, there were some officers who got off on some charges that caused huge riots out there. And it was around race. I know what it was. It was the uh, the gentleman who was uh, Rodney King. That's what it was. It was the Rodney King event. I was living in Los Angeles at that time. And I remember the verdict. And then I remember the aftermath. And in the aftermath, you had the Asians protecting their stores with AK-47s. You had stores on fire. It looked like Beirut. It looked like a war zone. I'd never seen anything like it before. And then fast forward to O.J. Simpson and then that verdict. And you saw the difference between how African Americans responded to the verdict and how whites responded to the verdict, right? It was a divide like you'd never seen before. And I was like, wow, I thought this country was better. For whatever reason, I, I, you know, I thought that. Um, you know, I talked to some of my white friends and he was guilty. I talked to my black friends, he was innocent. <laughs> And it went straight down the racial line, right? And I'm like, we really have a problem that we really need to address, but this country is, is, is fearful of having. It doesn't have the courage. Let me say not fearful. This country doesn't have the courage to have the conversation to solve it because we can solve anything. There's such a thing, and I think it was Dr. Glaude out of Princeton that said that there's a value gap that exists, right? And that value gap is because there's a group of people who value themselves more than other people. And as a result comes the privilege, as a result comes the comfort, as a result comes not wanting to have the conversation around race and, and racism um, to solve it. Because there's, there's the, the, the lack of courage of what I might have to give up, right? Um, and nobody's asking you to give up anything, right? Uh, we're just saying, make the acknowledgement. It, it is. We can go back to, to, to 1619. We can go back to the, 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 the uh, academic work of Theodore Allen when he talks about certain things around the creation of what we know as the white race in America, right? It's always interesting when you talk about race and racism uh, because everybody will say, well, it's a, it's a social construct. Yeah, race is a social construct. And so it, it is mythical. It doesn't exist. But it's interesting that racism exists, even though race doesn't exist, right? 
So this construct is is an American construct. Um, and that's what a lot of people fail to realize. There are different biases and prejudices that, that, that occur. But as far as a racial construct, this is the only country where racial construct actually happened. It might be in other countries based upon religion, uh, a tribal, but not around the hue of my skin. And that's what makes this very unique. Um, and the lack of courage to want to address it um, is something that I believe in root cause analysis, right? And so with root cause analysis, you know, we got to get to, let me t talk to what the root of this problem actually is. And for whatever reason, we want to do root cause analysis in business to, so to solve business problems, but we don't want to use it to solve the race problem. And we cannot have effective diversity, equity, inclusion systems to create equity unless we get to the root of what the problem is, and the problem is the racism. If you don't deal with racism, you can't possibly impact or affect diversity, equity, inclusion, because what you're saying is, I really don't want to deal with it, even though I have a program for it. I think, I really, uh, you know, courage is so important. I think, I think fear really is a part of the root, and... Mm reading a, a book recently mm -hmm. uh, noted author um, and he says that the heart of racism is power and the soul of racism is fear mm -hmm. you know it's really those basic human fears right am i inadequate am i a failure mm -hmm. am i insufficient am i insignificant in the world right mm -hmm. and it's that power that guards that fear mm -hmm. And so you have systems where things are put in place that the power creates an illusion, mm -hmm. an illusion that we're and the person in power is not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so then they don't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And we see that play out. I, mean, I think we probably saw a lot of that play out in the Black Lives Do Matter sign removal. Mm -hmm. We saw a heck of a lot of it play out around the whole Black Lives Matter movement in general across the country. And we're seeing it play out coming into the election cycle in a big kind of way. Um, you know, not to get too political, but we do need to have these conversations and peel it back to what's really at the root of it. And, you know, you and I do a lot of work around coaching, consulting, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and all that. And that's the kind of fear we're really talking about, right? right? And it's really a myth, right? Like we're all, uh, we all are playing certain roles at given times in our That's lives right. and That's careers. Right. And we don't always have a full command of everything and, and we work through it. Right. And, and really contemporary leadership and maybe why your, uh, study about the effectiveness of women leaders is mm -hmm. so high now, mm -hmm. um, is because of a better understanding of that concept and a better ability to enlist the ideas of people from the entire organization or society. I mean, there's such a gift there. And we see that when you talk about a workforce that has basically abandoned the workplace in many cases, right? right. Figured out better ways to do it, changed their whole way of living in order to not basically have to thrive in that environment because they can't this ability to create autonomy amongst the people that are working for you or who are associated with you in any way 
is the real power, right? So the real power, and I love this quote. There's there are books written about it. You know, is you know, if you want power, you have to give it away. Mm-hmm. You know, the real way to have power, which you may define as influence if you so choose, is to give it away freely. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you're part of something much greater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, fear. Man, that is a that's, that's that is such a intense emotion, right? When you start talking about this particular topic of the the fear to even want to sit and have the conversation and to be comfortable. You know, I remember doing a TED Talk in 2016, and there were certain topics they did not want me to talk about. They wanted to make it comfortable, right? Um, you know, but this is not about comfort. This is about being sandpaper, right? Because, again, sandpaper makes the, 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 the rough edges smooth. And in order for us to have smooth conversations about this, we must have them. And, and I'm going to go back to this. It's something that we both believe in, and that's leadership, right? What we're dealing with ultimately is a leadership issue, not only from a local perspective, but from a national and international perspective around this topic of race, racism, black lives do matter, um, and people wanting to say, well, we know that black lives matter, but all lives matter, but there's certain lives that have been experienced more trauma for whatever reason, simply because of the, I'm not going to say for whatever reason, simply because of the color of the skin. You know, it's like, I, I'll, I'll make the example, <clears throat> you and I, we leave out of here. We're going down the street driving. If I'm pulled by the blue lights, there's a certain approach that they're going to come to me with, not knowing who I am or what I do for a living. They see me a particular way, given what their experience has been and all that they've read and all that they've seen. Your experience is going to be a little bit different than mine, simply because of the hue of our skin. So we have to understand what the differences are. And that's the conversation that we're so fearful of having. Let me show you what my life is like. Let me show you what your life is like, and then let's bridge these together to understand that we're both human. But simply the hue of my skin gives me a different experience. When I ride down, you know, the the street and the blue lights pull me for whatever reason, or I can see them pulling behind me because maybe I'm listening to music and I snap my hand and the car jerks a little bit and they want to see if I got drugs in the car because I jerk my steering wheel just a little bit because I'm enjoying the music in my ear, right? I've had that experience and I'm like, I'm just listening to music, you know, and I snap my finger. Now you want to pull me and take me through, are there drugs in the car? Were you drinking? And I'm like, no, I'm listening to my favorite group and I like the groove and so I snap my finger. Had it been someone else of another hue, the possibility of that happening would probably been slim to none. And so my hue gives me my life's experience of how I've lived. And all I want you to do is to respect that. And history shows over a period of time, people with a certain hue of skin, this is how they've been treated. And you can't deny that. And again, CRT. So I'm for teaching real whole truth, 
not just the facts to create a story, but we need to have the whole truth. And you can't have whole truth without having discussion around black lives do matter. And I think there's a fear amongst government officials, both locally and nationally, around having those truthful conversations. Well, I think you can make a strong argument that maintaining this construct has been very beneficial in controlling the vote. Yes. And to a great extent, you've seen that play out for generations. For longer than I've been alive and longer than you've been alive, mm -hmm. that has continued to play out, right? That it, it is a mechanism to control the vote. Uh, and it has been incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. Whether you talk about how fear's been driven, whether you talk about things like the war on drugs and mass incarceration, mm -hmm. whether you talk about going back to medicine, the Flexner report that mm -hmm. closed so many of the medical schools that were educating the black physician. Um, you know, these are things that have been held in place intentionally mm -hmm. to help create an illusion of control and to a certain extent some control over those political mm -hmm. outcomes and you know increasingly what we see is that that control is not really legitimate and so it erodes you know and we keep having these repeat episodes where things happen and we realize there really wasn't that much control over this That's if right. any and we wonder why, you know, because for people like me, I mean, you described the experience. I don't worry about the things that you described from law enforcement. It hadn't been a part of my life, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I know enough people now, honestly, that when I'm riding around and I see those blue lights, I wonder. Mm -hmm. I pay attention to what's happening. And look to see if somebody, if it seems like it's a disadvantaged thing or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just a small step in the journey for people like me, right? It's really about having deeper conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's really about relationships mm -hmm. and knowing people. You know, because it's so easy. People believe what they want to believe. But if we know people that have experiences that can relate them to us, Hard not to believe that. Yep. Right? That's where these relationships, and you and I have talked about this many times in the past. What happens? Right? Like, we go through, you know, as athletes, high school, we are friends mm -hmm. in most of those, at least in mm -hmm. my experience mm -hmm. and in a, a lot of the mm -hmm. folks I know's experience. And then there's just this increasing distance that happens after whenever that competitive experience ends, mm -hmm. it's like the ocean parts and, mm -hmm. and there's no longer the level of inclusion that we were used to as teammates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that happen? How do we combat that in society now or in a different way? Yeah, I, I would agree with you because a lot of those guys I play ball with, I consider them brothers. We were together all the time. You come out of the house, pick me up. I go to your house. You know, I, I meet, we, we meet. You know, I meet your parents. You come to the house to eat, and then all of a sudden, 10, 15 years, it's like all of a sudden we lose that relationship. I'm like, how does that happen? So it's baffling to me of, of what what actually uh, happens. And so I've been 
trying to ask that question of some of the guys when I see them or, you know, what happens? You know, what happened, man? You know, I, I'm still the Terry Jackson that you knew when we played ball, um, maybe a little bit more polished, you know, education, but at the root, we're still the same. We had all these experiences, you know, together that I thought built the bond, but evidently on that end, that, you know, you didn't see it the same way that I I saw it. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma, uh, an interesting uh, topic to address, and you get so many different answers, right, from different people that you really, you know, it, it's confusing from time to time. Um, but, you know, to say that black lives matters or, or black lives do matter, and just to say that, when you go to the opposite, it means that it doesn't matter, right? When you have to come out and say black lives matter, there's a group of people that think it don't matter, right? And, and that's why they're saying, take down the sign. I can't respect my fellow human being um, because he's black, right? And I'm like, you guys miss it. You miss what was happening. And often, people only get it when they're proximate to a friend who's had the experience. And so I make it a point to tell my friends all the time, that could have been me. Then what would he have thought? What happens in our society often, and I don't know what to call this, um, but say you come up like a Michael Jordan. You play basketball, you're good, you're very good. Now people start to see you a little differently. They don't see you as black anymore. They see you as something totally different that I have yet to kind of figure out. And so that to see a person that particular way is more accepted. Now after playing ball and after being as good as he's, he, he was, probably the GOAT, he come, they're, 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 there's a reality that sets in again. He's an African-American male, right? He's kind of the exception because he's gone on to become a billionaire and, you know, NASCAR and owning a team. So he's still seen a little bit different. But there are others who they come back to reality, right? And it's like he's no longer um, so-and-so the superstar. He's now, again, a black man. And so I see him as I see other black people when he was producing for us, then we saw him differently, we treated him differently. And it's hard for the African-American athlete to understand that. That's why you see the challenges once they leave the sport world, because they don't have the attention, they're no longer seen the same, and they don't know how to adapt to that because they've been put in this Alice in Wonderland kind of world because of what they've been able to do for the school or for some professional team. And now when all that's over, you're just another black man. It's quite, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting to kind of look at it that way. Yeah, back to a different reality, right? Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, go back to Wilmington, the Black Lives Do Matter sign and taking that down. And you, you touched on it, the perception, your perception, you said two things. One is that if you're for taking the sign down, you may think that black lives don't matter. Right. 
And you also said, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, best case, it means you don't understand. Right. And, you know, from my perspective, real similar, right? It could very well mean that you don't believe black lives matter. And in the most respectful interpretation, what it says is you haven't put in the work to understand what the what the underlying message is, right? Like mm -hmm. you may have gone along with something to, to start with because it was the politically expedient way to go. It may have been what you needed at the time mm -hmm. or it was the compromise that you could accept. But when situations change, it wasn't important. The, mm -hmm. the underpinning of that wasn't important. Mm -hmm. And that kind of takes me to another tough question that I really wanted to get in on, on today's show is, what would it look like to show that black lives do matter? Mm. Mm. Yeah. What would that look like? You know, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of things, and it, it, I'm, I'm glad you led to that particular question because – Sometimes when you when you look around the Black Lives Matter movement, you hear those who are opposed to it uh, say, or when they see uh, acts of violence, say say black on black violence, right? They'll say, "So where is Black Lives Matter now?" And that's what I was kind of thinking. And so, what it would look like would mean that for every death of a black male or black female that Black Lives Matter would scream just as loud against that than it would if it's white versus black. Justice is justice is justice, and so it should go across all lines. I should be, and African Americans should be just as mad for the violence of one black male killing another male than if it were white officer killing a black male. It should be equal in the outrage. So I would see Black Lives Matter being more accountable for all violence against black to include black versus black. Also what I see sometimes is people will say, well, black on black crime uh, is extremely high. Well, if you read the FBI report, which comes out every year, it says that people create crimes against people who look like them. So if 85% of black males are, are killing black males, I think the number was something around, uh, well, actually it was 92%, but I think the number was all crime, uh, quite, quite, quite people who are murdered, I think it's 92%. 92% of all white males kill white males, 85% of all black males kill black males, something like that, right? But basically, the bottom line is people commit crimes against people who look like them. So black on black crime is a misnomer because no one says Chinese versus Chinese crime or Japanese versus Japanese or white on white crime. Nobody says that. They only say black on black crime. But the FBI report clearly lays it out by demographic, right? So... Black lives do matter. What it would look like is that black lives would be leading the conversation to reduce black crime, to reduce crime, period, across the city, the county, 
across the country. Any and every time there would be a crime, Black Lives Matter would speak. And Black Lives Matter would just be the name of the organization, but it would be a quote-unquote diverse organization, right? And it, it pretty much is kind of diverse. Um, and then maybe, maybe there's an offshoot of Black Lives Matter that becomes All Lives Matter. So those who are saying we shouldn't have Black Lives Matter, maybe they go out and march too and say that all lives matter. And so we should reduce all violence against all lives because we're all human. So it would look like to me, I don't want to call more, a more harmonious community of people working together to solve crime. Not pointing it out because it happened in one place as opposed to the other. Because crime happens everywhere. It happens in some places more than others, but it happens everywhere. I can remember seeing uh, the news where there was, a, I guess, a, a swimming pool out off of Holly Tree one day, and some man went over there and shot his wife, right? And that wasn't black-on-black -black crime. It was crime, right? It was a white male. I think he was rushing or something. He killed his wife. And we've seen it all around the city, right? You know, the pandemic has caused a lot of anxiety, right, around a lot of things. And so there are mental health issues that people are dealing with. And so they have these episodes, and they commit these violent crimes. But at the root of it all, people have a tendency to pay more attention to Black Lives Matter. And uh, if you want to see the violence stop with Black Lives Matter, I say get engaged and become involved. Doesn't matter if you're Asian, doesn't matter if you're white. All you want to see is humanity become better. And, you know, a lot of the fear is really around self-preservation. Uh, and a lot of people may not want to uh, you know, admit that, but that's that's a lot of that fear, and so you, you kind of stay away. I've I've often asked this question, especially in corporate America, and I'm like, well, hmm, it's interesting. The people who are doing the excluding are the people we'll ask. We are asking to do the including, when it's obvious that exclusion is the nature. And if exclusion is the nature, you're never going to have inclusion. And then when you look at corporate America and you look at um, you look at the budgets and you see diversity, equity, inclusion, and there's no dollars, that tells me you're not serious about it because you need, you, you know, in order to influence people, you got to have a budget to put programs and systems in place to overcome it. But when you look at the budget and it doesn't have any dollars, that tells me that it's set up for failure. And that's what we're seeing because you can't tell me this country can't solve diversity, equity, and inclusion. It doesn't want to solve it. It's a smokescreen. It always has been a smokescreen. And to go back to Black Lives Matter, <clears throat> diversity programs began in the, that, 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 that term was coined back in 1982. That was right again, coming out of, coming out of segregation and the desegregation. And what happened is you, you, you in the 90s, you begin to see it morph. And so begin to include women and everybody else. And it never addressed the real issue of, let's talk about the black employee, the empl black employee who we're not giving opportunities to. 
So instead of dealing with them, we're going to include everybody else. And now that we've included everybody else, we've watered down their uh, case around wanting to be included. And so black lives have always mattered. They will always matter. People go out and say they love Dr. King, but he was a black man, right? And some of the same people who talk about Black Lives Matter and they don't like it say they love Dr. King. And I said, well, how can you do that? And you love him in his death because 70, 72% of all people hated Dr. King when he, lived, when he was living. You only love him in his death. And you watered him down to I have a dream. But his most important speech was the birth of a nation when he came back from Ghana. And he talked about what it meant for Ghana to get their, gain their independence from Great Britain. That was his most important speech. Not I have a dream. Because I have a dream speech that was, was written had to be reviewed by the FBI. And that wasn't a part of the speech. What happened was Mahalia Jackson stood up and yelled during the the dream speech, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. And so he pushed the papers to the side, and he went into, I have a dream. But that wasn't a part of the original speech, and a lot of people don't know that history. And so black lives have always mattered. Black lives will always matter. Let's look at the contributions that we've made to this country. And so for those who don't think it matters, they're delusional. It's quite obvious because there's something in their house today that they use that somebody black created. As simple as the comb. Yeah, so amazing. <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, if, if you think about Dr. King and the I Have a Dream, all he was asking for was fulfillment of the promise, That's of right. the original promise of the country. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we would want anything different and at some level it seems like it's time to overcome the fear have the courageous conversations and figure out how to make a difference so I look forward to exploring a lot of these topics you know as we wrap up today I'd like to invite everybody to check us out at unlikelyintersections.com check me out at doc philip brown on my linkedin profile and terry where do you like to be checked out you can check me out on linkedin uh dr terry uh, terry jackson phd on linkedin and i look forward to it and we look forward to, to hearing your feedback and being able to respond to you and mighty grateful for the attention today yes <laughs>